Hello, this is Len Tengis welcoming you to the iPodcast AGCMO Weekly Podcast. In each episode, we'll feature information about a contractor, specialty contractor, supplier, contracting agency, owner, or legislative or regulatory issue pertinent to the construction industry in Missouri. We'll feature industry professionals and other construction industry representatives to help our listeners stay up to date with current and future trends in construction. So here we go. Today's iPodcast AGCMO features an interview with Steve Sandher. Steve is the CEO of AGC of America. This is a little bit of an extended podcast, a little longer than our normal format, but there's a lot of good content here. Steve? Thanks for being here today. Uh, my pleasure, Len. Thank you. You have two days in a row in the office this week. <laughs> hard to believe. That's correct. That you, is. It is hard to believe. You yeah. spend a lot of time visiting the chapters, don't you? Uh, I've been on the road a lot so far this year, yep. AGC Enjoy has, doing that. AGC has how many chapters now? A- 89. 89 chapters and how many members? Uh, uh, about 27,000 and change member firms, yeah. Well, what did those chapters and members and your board and all of your staff get done during the last 12 months? Despite the toxic political environment in Washington, we did have some uh, successes. One of them was uh, we avoided rescissions or cuts in the federal highway program that would have been about $7.6 billion. We had secured about $161 billion in federal construction accounts through the appropriations process. Um, We supported, and the president recently signed, the USMCA trade agreement, which brings, uh, I think, some uh, needed clarity and certainty in the uh, trade relationships with two of our biggest trading partners that should result in increased investment here in North America that should benefit the construction industry. On the regulatory front, there have been, uh, you know, this is where this administration, I think, has made the most progress. We've had uh, a new rule on waters of the United States, and AGC was uh, instrumental in commenting on the new rule and providing some uh, necessary guidance on the impact on construction. Outside of the uh, advocacy area, workforce is still a huge priority, if not the priority, for our association and for our members. We hear about it every day at the local level. Yeah, uh, of course you do. And some things that we're chipping away on, we had a a very success. We worked with uh, what's uh, called CPEG, which is the Construction uh, personnel executives group, and it's uh, some of the larger contractors, and we did a pilot project with them, a social media campaign, and it targeted minorities, it targeted uh, families with uh, households with income of less than $40,000 a year, uh, unemployed people, and uh, the objective was to get them to go and visit a website and learn about the opportunities in the construction crafts. We did this over about a five-week period in about eight different cities, and the results were very, very positive. One firm told us that they had a 20% increase in applications for craft physicians, and so now we're trying to figure out a way to pay for this to take it national. 
so that we can, uh, you know, use a relatively inexpensive but effective method of reaching out to people and getting them to learn about the good paying jobs that exist in the construction industry and opportunities for growth and advancement and how they can get started in that through training programs, pre-apprenticeship programs, etc. So that was a pilot program that ran in some select areas that you're really looking Correct. to ramp up now going Correct. ahead. Correct. To go back to the things that happened in Washington, D.C., I think a lot of folks, including our members, look at the newspaper and figure, well, that stuff just happens, and since AGC's name isn't in there or the trade association's names aren't in there, that's just a bunch of uh, wonks up on Capitol Hill that are making this stuff yeah. up, but you know that's not how it happens. It's not, it's not how it happens, and also there's a lot of stuff that doesn't happen bad stuff that doesn't happen because we're engaged and we're engaged in every issue that potentially impacts the construction industry and that sets us apart from others in the construction trade association world takes a lot of time and a lot of effort on your staff to track all those things i'm sure some of the things that are in the trade agreement or in some of the regulatory reforms or things that are a direct result of input from agc of america into that discussion. Yep, that's correct. And that takes time, and it takes some smart people. Yep, and we thankfully we have them. Uh, as a rule, I never hire anybody as dumb as me. <laughs> that's the same method I follow. So where are we headed looking ahead? Because we know mm-hmm. that 2020 will be a fun year in Washington. It's hard to uh, gaze into the crystal ball and get anything other than a cloudy reading, but let me raise two issues that would be of interest to the listeners. Sure. First of all, you know, this president has been very outspoken about the need for infrastructure investment, which, you know, since the day he was elected, it's been music to the ears of construction contractors. You know, the challenge uh, has been, with all of the ambitious plans that he's put out, and and I'm going to talk a little bit about what the um, House Democrats just came out with a couple weeks ago, the challenge has been, well, we have needs. You know, here are some plans to address those needs, but there's not been any serious discussion about how do you pay for it. It seems like every one of these has been a laundry list of projects and a wish list, but we've all got wish lists. Correct. So as I mentioned, the House Democrats came out with a, I would say, a comprehensive infrastructure proposal. It's about $760 billion over five years. It includes about $320 billion for highways, $105 billion for transit, $55 billion for railroads, $30 billion for airports, about $20 billion for harbor maintenance, $10 billion for water resources, $50 billion for clean water programs, $25.5 billion for safe drinking water, and $34 billion for um, clean energy. And, you know, when you look at those numbers, uh, that's all very attractive. And the problem, though, is that there's only really three methods of paying for it that are identified in the proposal. Uh, One is yet another pilot program for testing a vehicle miles traveled levy. Mm -hmm. 
uh, continue to spend down the Harbor Maintenance Trust Fund, which we have long advocated for. And then the airports program increase um, the passenger facility charge, or as we call it the ticket tax, which has been capped at $4.50 per segment since 2000. And that's it. Doesn't seem like yeah. any of those would generate anywhere near enough dollars no. to that's offset exactly the wish right. list. That's exactly right. So, and that's, I think, why the Democrats and the administration have really not engaged in a serious discussion over this because nobody wants their fingerprints on the weapon of, you know, increased user fees. Right. Uh, And they would rather let somebody else step out with that first and then, oh, look, they want to raise taxes. So that doesn't give me a lot of encouragement that something substantial is going to be accomplished. Now, having said that, I I can tell you that on the Senate side, the Finance Committee, which has the jurisdiction over finding the ways to pay for this, is uh, they're having discussions about identifying things, including perhaps indexing the gas tax, which would be a big help. But again, you know, it's an election year, and who's going to who's going to have the profile and courage to to stand up and say this needs to happen so we're encouraging that we also have our menu of options of funding options that that we continue to offer the people that have to make this decision on how to pay for the program how to pay for more infrastructure and and we'll continue uh, to advance that and i'm figuring um, in agc's view you're looking at a myriad of resource Revenue yeah, resources. Yeah. You're looking at fuel tax. Or you're looking at the fees. You're looking at a whole, Fee, whole series yeah, of things. Yeah, yeah. We're looking at uh, registration fees for hybrids and for uh, electric vehicles because uh, electric vehicles, in particular, are free riders on the on the highway system. Mm-hmm. They're not paying in the gas tax, uh, so they're they get to take a free ride and. Uh, the irony is that you know somebody driving a hundred thousand dollar Tesla that got a seven thousand dollar tax credit for buying an electrical vehicle isn't paying a gas tax, and you know the single mom driving a fifteen year old Honda uh, with three kids is paying a gas tax to for the privilege of driving on the roads. And I think uh, some of the states uh, have confronted that, but the federal mm-hmm. program has not. Correct. Correct. Yeah. That's correct. What's the second issue that you were going to talk about? The second about? issue, yeah, the second issue um, is more of a defensive issue for us, and it's called the PRO Act. And the PRO Act stands for Protect the Right to Organize. And it is essentially the AFL-CIO's wish list over the last 50 years. And on its face, union contractors would think, oh, this isn't all, all bad, because if more non-union construction firms got organized, that would that would help us by having more employers paying into benefit plans. Well, let me give you some bullets as as to the uh, the impact of the Pro Act. So first of all, it would repeal uh, right to work laws in 27 states. Uh, AGC of America doesn't have a position on right to work. We consider that to be a, a state-by-state issue. Mm-hmm. Um, it allows what uh, is called backdoor card check. 
Uh, your listeners may recall uh, during the Obama administration, the business community defeated uh, what was known as card check, which would force an employer to bargain with a union without an election demonstrating majority support, but only through employees uh, without the protection of a secret ballot signing what are known as authorization cards and a 50% plus one of the appropriate bargaining unit signed those cards, then the employer would be required to bargain. In this scenario, the elections would still be the primary method for determining majority support. But if the union lost that election, the secret ballot election, they would be able to appeal it by presenting a majority of plus one of authorization cards. So in other words, they lost, they go to employees individually in, in I would say, an atmosphere where the employee is not afforded the right to exercise their free will and could coerce them to sign these cards. Secondly, California last year enacted a law known as AB5, which is a very narrow reading of what an independent contractor is. And under that reading, in particular, the impact on the construction industry has been that it would force contractors who utilize the services of independent truck drivers to, if they are working, you know, for a certain period of time under the direction of the general contractor that they would actually be considered an employee rather than an independent contractor and would have to be compensated by the general contractor. It doesn't take too long to figure out that that would have a significant impact on public works projects where contractors are utilizing or or meeting DBE goals in many cases by utilizing independent owner-operators of trucks. So not only would that create possibly an employee-employer relationship, but it would also reduce the the contractor's ability to meet their good-faith obligations. There are a lot of risk Uh, factors that are involved, too, with insurance issues and work comp issues and everything Mm -hmm. else that goes along with that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it would also allow for what are called quickie elections and restrict the employer's ability to communicate with their employees about whether or not union representation is in their best interest. And so, you know, from all of that, then we turn to what are the impacts on union contractors? And this, I think, is where it will get a lot of union contractors' attention. So first of all, It would overturn over 70 years of labor law and allow secondary boycotts. So a contractor right now has the ability where a a subcontractor on a project perhaps is being struck by a union to erect a, a, a reserve gate only for the employees of that subcontractor so that other union employees on the project would not honor a picket line. They would be able to continue to working. This would take that protection away. Secondly, it would permit intermittent strikes and slowdowns for whatever reason. Uh, generally, under current law, strikes are only permitted if the employer has committed an unfair labor practice or the parties have bargained to impasse and the union wants to put uh, additional pressure on the employer to meet their contract demands. Perhaps most disturbingly, it would permit strikes over jurisdictional disputes and also eliminate the NLRB's 
process, the 10K process that's used to adjudicate jurisdictional disputes. So basically, uh, law of the jungle on a construction project. So a lot of things that have been in place for a number of years that have gone through the NLRB and been worked out, joint labor management things would be thrown out the window. Yeah, and it would also, it would, you know, essentially just encourage additional jurisdictional disputes. It would require for the first collective bargaining agreement mandatory interest arbitration. And what I mean for that is, so if in the event that a union is uh, deemed to be the majority representative of the employees, and after 90 days, the parties, the union and the employer, did not reach an agreement on a, on a contract, then it would have to be submitted, the terms would have to be submitted to a three-person arbitration board who may not know anything about the construction industry, may not, obviously would not know anything about your business, but they would basically be permitted to write the collective bargaining agreement between the two parties. And as I mentioned that it's only for the first contract. Now, the open question, two open questions for us are, one, uh, let's assume a union contractor who has been working in a pre-hire situation, an 8F agreement, over the years, and then all of a sudden the union had an election and converted the bargaining status to a permanent or 9A uh, relationship. Does that contract, uh, that contract after conversion, is that the considered to be the first contract for purposes of requiring mandatory interest arbitration? Secondly, our concern is if this is such a great idea for the first contract, would a court, a future Congress, the NLRB decide if these, these are if this is a, a great deal for first contracts, why shouldn't it be implemented for subsequent contracts. What our DOT calls project creep. Exactly. So that is a trap for the unwary. And then finally, the legislation would um, require uh, civil penalties of two times uh, actual damages uh, against officers and directors of of a company for any unfair labor practices committed by the company. So it has uh, significant remedies for aggrieved unions or employees where uh, unfair labor practices have been committed. And uh, no surprise here, there are not parallel penalties for unions that engage in unfair labor practices or their officers and directors. So. Last week, uh, this bill did pass the House, basically along party lines. No surprise there. Right. There were a handful of Republicans that voted with the AFL-CIO. There were a handful of Democrats that did not vote for the bill, typically Democrats that are in tight, uh, I would say, marginal districts. And the good news is this isn't going anywhere in the Senate this year. What is requires us to be vigilant is that if the Democrats were to run the tables in the election in November and maintain the, their House majority, retake the Senate and uh, and the White House, that this this bill has a really good chance of becoming law. Now, 
your enlightened listeners would probably think, well, wait a second, I thought it took 60 votes in the Senate to get anything through. And under current rules of the Senate, that is absolutely true. However, Democrats are openly discussing the possibility, if not the likelihood, that if they do retain the Senate, retake the Senate, that they're going to eliminate the filibuster rule, which means that any piece of legislation that garners 51 votes uh, will pass the Senate. So in that scenario, if the Democrats have the House, if they have 51 votes in the Senate, and if they have the White House, there's a, I would say, almost certain chance that this thing becomes law. So if if you ever needed you know any more evidence that elections have consequences this uh, certainly um, would meet that uh, standard or that the work of a national trade association is important to stay tuned to these issues and help build awareness of what is going on this is a right. key case in point and you have uh, AGC yeah. of America has prepared a document that helps our members understand all these things that you talked about Correct. We commissioned uh, a well-known uh, labor law firm, uh, Ice Miller, I'll give them a plug here, to do a white paper on the impact of the PRO Act on union contractors. And uh, it's not a lengthy document. It's about five or six pages. But it, it I think, gives a really good uh, overview of, of the way the world would change if this uh, misguided piece of legislation were enacted. Well, Steve, since all of our members here at AGC of Missouri are also de facto members of AGC of America, mm-hmm. how can they get involved? What would be the best way for them to mm-hmm. get the best value from the investment they're making in AGC? Well, I would say be engaged. And be, being engaged has a broad spectrum of meaning. At the one end of the spectrum, it's paying attention to what we send out. And I'll be the first to admit that we send a lot of stuff out. There are a lot of things people going are busy. on. Yeah, there are a lot. But, you know, just look at the headline. If it's something that is um, appealing to you, uh, take 30 seconds and read it, because I think you'll find the information is useful. And then as you go across the spectrum, there's, you know, more ways to be engaged. You know, one, you know, uh, a step away from that is, when you see us send out an alert about something like the PRO Act and we're encouraging you to contact your members of Congress, it's a real fast, easy way to do it. It's, it takes you about 15 seconds. You know, you click on the on the site that's in the email. It, you put in your zip code. It tells you who your congressmen and obviously your senators and, and it allows you to send a prepackaged uh, message uh, to your elected representatives. And then, you know, beyond that, we are obviously always looking for people to be engaged in a more active fashion, participate in our forums, our listservs, our committees, divisions, whatever, on issues that either you're interested in or you have a particular expertise that you can share with other members. And I think people that do that uh, find that they get more than they put in based upon their you know interaction with other like-minded folks and these are good networking and educational opportunities and then finally 
we've got a convention in the beginning of March in Las Vegas. Part of uh, we're part of Con Expo, and that's a really good opportunity for members to learn a lot more in a more in-depth fashion about what we're doing, as well as take uh, advantage of some high-quality educational programs that we're offering and. And then for uh, the, all the little boys and little girls out there that like toys, they can go to Con Expo and they can look at a lot of yellow iron and take their write their wish list to Santa Claus about about uh, all the the equipment they'd like to take home with them. And that should be a very interesting show because I know that technology is playing a bigger and bigger role in our industry right now. I know AGC of America has this future focused task force that you're looking at because. Whether it's labor, whether it's contracts, whether it's the actual processes that are going on on the job site, technology is here and the pace of change is only accelerating. Well, you know, as we, as we began the discussion, workforce, the challenges of the workforce uh, shortage has required contractors to use more technology to help them with scheduling, to help them with productivity. And if you take a look at the number of people that were working uh, at our previous peak in 2006, and at that time I think there was about $1.2 trillion of construction activity taking place, and now we're doing more than that with about 10 to 15% less workers. And, you know, in those 14 years, obviously, there have been significant technological improvements that have made contractors more efficient, and that's only going to continue as uh, as we move forward. And Con Expo will be a good place to get in tune with that. Absolutely. Steve, I really appreciate it. I know that uh, AGC of America, to me, is like the classic case of the duck that it looks calm above the water. I know all your <laughs> staff are paddling like crazy below the water to keep up with everything that's going on at the federal level and communicate that out to the chapters. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks for all you do for us, too. Thanks again for listening. It's easy to subscribe to iPodcast AGCMO on almost any podcast platform that you use. We hope you do subscribe and continue to listen as we move forward with this important project for the construction industry. To access our prior podcasts, visit www.agcmo.org, not only for podcasts, but for additional information about AGC of Missouri.